I'll move on because <laughs> it says I'm supposed to. Um, reading to you from Matthew chapter 5, verse 13 through 16, and I am reading out of the Passion. Your lives are like salt among the people, but if you like salt become bland, how can your saltiness be restored? Flavorless salt is good for nothing and will be thrown out and trampled on by others. Your lives light up the world. Let others see your light from a distance, for how can you hide a city that stands on a hilltop? And who would light a lamp and then hide it in an obscure place? Instead, it's placed where everyone in the house can benefit from its light. So don't hide your light. Let it shine brightly before others, so that the commendable things you do will, be, will shine as light upon them, and then they will give their praise to your Father in heaven. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God, and thank you for that reading, Shelley. The kids are invited to join Shelby today who will be teaching outside. This is our second Sunday in the Sermon on the Mount. This is why Kelly normally teaches the kids. She's in here once, and she's like, scoot it up. You're so far back. It's, 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 I get a, a long to-do list after when, it's, when she's in here. Um, this is our second Sunday in the Ser Sermon on the Mount series. And, and what I titled this series, and I knew that was going to happen, but this one still works. Um, I switched the TVs today. Uh, instructions for building a house and that comes from the end of the sermon where the disciples are told that the people who build their house upon these teachings build their house upon a rock and the people who go off to build other things build their house upon sand that cannot withstand the storms and we'll get to that point at some point and and one of the things that Lauren proposed is that maybe the sermon series go on um, as a true Mennonite, that's, that's sort of what you would do. Um, and, and there's a chance we could pause this for Advent and pick it up for Epiphany season. So if people want to do that, talk to me afterwards. Right now, it's Lauren against everybody, I assume. So somebody else has to agree with him to, to, to uh, say, let's continue on. Um, but the, part of the reason why I love that end to the Sermon on the Mount is it frees us from that idea that this is a teaching that we're not supposed to do that it's only there to prove our sinfulness, or it's only an impossible ethic, or it's only an interim ethic. We talked about all this last week, but it's, it's there, it tells us that these are things that are meant to be put into practice, that these are, we, are we, how we are to build the homes of our lives, that how we are to build life together. And one of the things we talked about last week, which we'll hit on again this week, is it's not just for you to build your house, but it's for a community of people to build this place in the world where this kingdom comes. Now, one of my favorite jokes, which is not funny, I, I've later learned, but is David's like, a, he says that and then it's not, is that Jesus comes and he promises this world-altering kingdom with these beatitudes and blessings, and he, he promises the transformation of the world through this kingdom, and what we got in the end was the church. Um... And there's a deep challenge in there, is that Jesus brings this message of the kingdom, and yet the church seems to be a lot 
different than the kingdom. And I think there's lots of reasons for that. But one of the things that we are trying to do through this sermon series and trying to do, I think, as many Christians that make up the church in the 21st century is retake these back on to make it a vibrant thing again, to be how do we constitute ourselves like the kingdom is constituted in the world? How do we become people who they don't go, there was this kingdom that they told us about, and then we got the church. Before we begin, one of the things I cut from last week is, is this abstract art picture. Does anybody know who this is? It, it's the Broadway Boogie Woogie, um, and its uh, genre is geometric abstraction. And, and one of the things that they talked about, what the Sermon on the Mount is, is, is an epitome. It's, it's an essence thing. And the, the one time I had sort of heard the word epitome used in, in a way that I actually understood it, it was about abstract art. In some sense, it was saying is that, like, if you look at this, you see um, it looks like a 1980s video game to me, except with maybe a little bit more color. Um, but when you consider that the artist is trying to capture sort of what the, the dance, the Broadway boogie woogie was, but also the streets, it said, as I read about this painting, is that he's trying to get the essence of what it is. Part of what comes with abstract art is this idea that if you want to know what something looks like today, you can just take a picture of it. But if you want to know what it is, then we have to take apart the picture and make it exemplify something in a different way. So the Sermon on the Mount, as this announcement of the kingdom, is not just a picture of the kingdom, but it's something that sort of makes up the the essence of what it is. It teaches us to see what the contours and shapes of the kingdom are in a way that just a picture wouldn't. It, It gives us boundaries. It gives us a frame. It gives us guidelines. It gives us a way of understanding life in this way. And one of the challenges I I talked about last week is the Sermon on the Mount from Jesus is about 16 minutes long, and I'm going to give 10 sermons on one sermon, and Lauren wants like 20 on one sermon. So, um, but part of the challenge is it doesn't seem like the Sermon on the Mount was given necessarily as one full teaching. But it's a collection that Matthew sort of pulled together to sort of display what this thing is. Incidentally, he puts Jesus on a mount, as we've talked about too, as this sort of Moses-like figure who is giving this again to them. And so as you read the Sermon on the Mount, it it's almost reads like a collection of Proverbs sometimes, that they're strung together and the transitions aren't clear. Uh, homiletics class would not go well for Jesus. Well, these are all nice sentiments, but how are you linking them together? Um, when in fact, that maybe that's not the way it was originally sort of preserved for us, but as a way for us to come and see what is this thing that is the kingdom? And how do we begin to see its outlines and its contours? One of the things that we talked about last week, too, is that at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount comes these blessings before these commands. The first half of the blessings were the Beatitudes, in which he, he, he blesses all these people that you would think are not necessarily blessable, or not blessable in their current state. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And he raises this way in which his kingdom is this place for people who are, who are at the bottom, who are in some sense almost unblessable, to be blessed again and to hear the goodness of what God is going to be for them. 
And one of the things we try to do, hopefully as a church, is not push those things off into just a future. At at the fullness of all things, this will be true. Deeply, I believe, at the fullness of all things, it'll be true. But, But the kingdom and the church is meant to sort of make a dent in the world, too, as it is. Blessed are you who mourn, see you later, is not the way that Jesus calls us to live. Neither is that the way he lives his life. He is one who comforts as he blesses in that. And the full comfort is promised at a future date. We can't lose sight of that either. This is last week we talked about the already and the not yet. There is an already to this blessing and there is a not yes to these blessings. And, and those things will become fulfilled. But he blesses before he gives commands. He doesn't just come up on the scene and tell them what to do, but he sort of brings them into a place of knowing who they are as blessed ones. Now, we're going to walk through the sayings that Shelley read for us today, sort of line by line. And the first one is you, but in the Greek has a plural singular, it's more y'all. I like to make this point because I get to say y'all, and I sound like the northerner that I am. Um... Y'all, it's just getting worse. Um, He gives almost all the commands to holiness, to mission, to goodness in the New Testament and in the Old Testament are given in a plural form. You are salt and light. It's a big challenge. Your community, the one that I've called out and blessed at the start of this sermon, is called to be salt for the world. In some sense, this is what the church is supposed to be, is it's this community of you all who make this up. So often we we take the Sermon on the Mount and sort of try to push it into an individualized ethic as if you're supposed to do it yourself, when in fact what the Sermon on the Mount, from the beginning, when he calls his disciples to him, that is the opening after that it's given from a mount, is, is that they are and and they're blessed, is that they're a community of people called out. This is uh, how I illustrated it last week to some degree, Um, was with Jesus at the center and these people being drawn into him, Um, and then the crowds sort of watching in in that further circle. And crowds move into being disciples, and crowds move away from being disciples, but the disciples are those called to sort of this center in which Jesus is making a people in the world. He's constituting people who are to be salt and light, and not just all by themselves, but in some sense, in a way, um, together. You are to be salt and light. I like, you are to be a city on a hill, should help free us from that, that individualized too, because a city is, is not one person. Um, that's, sometimes you say things when you're preaching and it's like, duh. Um, but a city is a group of people. A city is, is a formation. The second word I want to um, look at is R, which is, we're not going to get through this very fast if that's what we're doing. Um, you are. Uh, it'll go faster at some point. Um, you can become, it's, it's commencement speech. You have these choices before you. You can do these things. Go and seize your day. Uh, Jesus, what he says to them is you are this. See, we live in a world where we try to make our lives in which much of what we're sold is this attempt to sort of be and become something, to make something of ourselves is what we say. And what Jesus says, you are salt. You are light. 
then you might be thinking, well, you know, I, I became a Christian, but I don't know if I signed up to be salt or light. And it's like, too bad. You are salt. You are light. And so often we conceive of the Christian life as this trying thing. And the Sermon on the Mount, I think, is going to free us from that in so many ways when he says, uh, my yoke is easy and my burden is light, and how we are freed from these type of things. It's this call to be in the world in a free way. So you don't earn the ability to be salt and light, which Jesus declares to you is that you are this. It's not up for you to make this all by yourself. And, and this decision for us has already been made. We've already been proclaimed as this. There's a warning that comes in the salt passage, less so in the light, um, but that this is what we are. God has, has decreed this. And, and that, I think, is one of the things that I always have to pause and remember is that God said this. Um, Oftentimes you can think, you know, these are nice commands um, and these are a nice way to conceive of the world. But it is the, the, what Brian read, um, the creators of the heaven and earth in Isaiah, who says to you, and he says it to those people, light to the Gentiles, is you are this. And not only that, going back to the Beatitudes, it's you are, he just blessed a whole list of people we talked about that maybe you don't want to be in. And his next words to them, you are salt, you are light. And so the challenge for us is not to make something of ourselves, but, but to, to move into the reality of what we are. It's not a huge thing to, to sort of put out a project for. It's what you already are declared by God that you're supposed to be in the world. It's hard, I think, even, I mean, part of being a pastor and teacher and stuff like this is trying to, like, you know, get up and do this. It's, it's a challenge. and Go take the field and live your life strongly. And, and Jesus just says, no, this is what you are. Learn to trust in that. Learn to know that of yourself. No rush to a project. So you all are salt you all are light. We'll start with salt. Salt is this uh, image that Jesus chooses and is, means so many different things. And part of, I think, the reason to accept why he chooses it is because it means so many different things. So, so often we want to know, well, what exactly did it mean? And teachers and all sorts of people can choose an image to make you, uh, to have you sort of think it out. What does it mean? It means this, it means that, to apply all of them. So I'm not going to advocate that there is one correct interpretation of what does it mean that he says we are salt. Salt in the ancient world was a payment for the soldiers. It was used in sacrifices and offerings. It was a purifier, it was a condiment, it was a preservative. Throughout the scriptures, it's a sign of purity, of necessity, of loyalty, of peace, of good speech. There's one, I, I, I have an abbreviated version of this one commentary, but somebody else talking about it said, Davies and Allison say all 11 things salts are, are, are is, and then refuse to answer what it is. So I was like, that sounds about right. There are 11 things that this could be, and, and we should maybe perhaps refuse to answer which one specifically it is. But salt and light both have this nature in which they are essential for life. 
To say, as Jesus does here, that you are what is essential for the earth with salt and essential for the cosmos, uh, for for the universe with light, is, is to say something quite profound, is to say that you make up what is essential for this world and your uniqueness. You make up what is needed in the world. You make up that which purifies, preserves, adds uh, some flavor, some spice to the world. That you are the ones that are to make this thing up for the sake of the earth. Now, I didn't, I really don't know how this was going to tie this sermon, but this came in the meal this week, which mail this week, which is, I don't, I like this kind of salt, and everybody can make fun of me for it. I don't know how much, Kelly, did you remember how much it weighed? I think it's three pounds of salt. All, all great food starts with a pinch, it says. Um, so this is, this is three pounds of salt. And one of the things that, it's a special salt. It's a finishing salt, if you're nerdy enough to know about that. You put it on at the end, not at the beginning. Uh, and you can crunch it into different sizes. It's flakes. Anyways, um, this is one of those times where it's like, what did you learn about at church today? Salt. Um, True, but hopefully more. But one of the things I wanted to propose about this is that one way that we have taken salt to mean that I think is worth challenging is salt as in a shaker. And, and this comes from the Reformed uh, uh, Luther in this. The salt they thought was the message of the gospel, and you sort of sprinkle it into the world, right? And what I want to say is that that's right and that's true, but also salt is this three-pound container that is an essence and a thing in the world. It's not just something that sprinkles out, but it's something that makes up something more. If you are the salt of the earth. If we are the salt of the earth, we're not just a salt shaker. We're like a three-pound thing of salt that is here as well. And one of the things about salt, at least as it's used in cooking and food and many other places, is it needs to be used. So if I had a steak um, or some vegetables for the vegetarians, um, and I set them here and here, and I said, this is salt and veggies, salt and steak. You would be like, well, you have to put it on. It has to be utilized. It doesn't just um, stay there. And one of the things about this, I think about the kingdom and about the church, is it's meant to sort of penetrate into the world. It's supposed to sort of rest on that place and give it its flavor and its necessity. You don't just pile the salt up next to what you're going to eat, but you put it on it. You give it over to it. It makes something in the world. You are the salt of the earth. You are to penetrate the earth. You are to go into the earth. One of the the commentators who's the best on this, and I know many of you have read it, is The Cost of Discipleship by Diedrich Bonhoeffer. And he really wants us to see that when Jesus says the earth, he means here. So often, we, we just jump to heaven. And what he's saying is it goes into this earth. We're preservative for this place. That God loved it blessed it, created it, and so we are called into it, not just to escape it, but to add flavor to it, to add purity to it, to add preservative to it so that it can last. And one of the things he raises for us is that salt, when it loses its saltiness, must be thrown out. Now, 
for the chemistry nerds among us, Brian, um, sorry, salt doesn't lose its saltiness. Um, that, that's not something that happens, I guess, he'll explain it to you, chemical-wise. Salt can't lose its saltiness. So what is Jesus referring to here? There's some chance in the, the dead sea salt that they used had a lot of impurities in it, and so it would become you know, less salty, and so you would just throw it out. Another is that um, salt being valuable in the ancient world would, would get full of sort of fillers to make it last longer, and at some point you put enough filler in there and it doesn't taste like salt anymore, it just tastes like the filler something I would fail at very well. Um, I'd be like, just put a little bit of this in. doesn't taste like salt. Throw it out. But what he says is that you need to remain your saltiness. You need to, to keep that, that it's not for you to sort of lose your saltiness in the world. It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. This is incidentally near language that Jesus later in this gospel will use for um, being thrown out into the dark places as well. And what does it mean that we should remain salty? How do we, how do, we do this in a world? And I think that a lot of us know this intuitively from how we live our lives is that there are people, the challenge in the Christian life in the modern world sometimes is how Christian can I be in this situation? Um, so when somebody's hurting around you, how quick can you offer to pray for them without it seeming like you're blowing off their pain and suffering or offending them? Um, and this goes into lots of other realms too. If you look at the Sermon on the Mount, the ethic in which we retain our saltiness is very, um, normal or, uh, every day, but it's also very hard uh, you have your own enemies, you would like to curse them. The people around you have enemies too, and they'd like to curse them too. And what does he say? That you are to love them. You are to turn the other cheek. There's a call to div- uh, fidelity in the face of divorce in the Sermon on the Mount. There's a, there's a call away from lustfulness in a world so dominated by lust. There's a call away from violence. There's a call away from... Uh, a call towards prayer, not for your own sake to be puffed up in the world, a call towards almsgiving in a way in which you don't make a show of it for yourself. This way of remaining salty is, is not popular as, as we think it is. Um, and to do so means to do so and to look odd at times. Now, one of the, the things that, that I think is true about salt and light. This quote's on the back of your bulletin. The radiant city on a hill is a symbol for the church as a contrast society, which precisely as a contrast society transform the world. If the church loses its contrast character, if its salt becomes flat and its light is generally extinguished, it loses its meaning. Salt and light are contrast words. There is bland and then there is three pounds of salt. There is darkness and there is light. The church, this community of people, is called to be a contrast society in the world. That's not an easy thing to do, but it means to say that we have to remain in our ability to contrast with the world. See, Jesus' ethic, and, and rightly was criticized as, as sort of a, a sectarian ethic, is that it's, it's meant to keep you apart. It's meant to keep you. But, but what I think when you read it correctly, it's meant to keep you in saltiness um, 
for the ability to go into the world so that the world knows what it can be in its fullness. The kingdom is the foretaste of what God is going to do in the world. And so as we remain in the saltiness that God has proclaimed that we are, we become something that contrasts in a way that says so much more is possible, that we can live in a different way. Salt and light, I think, throw this this sort of character of sort of contrast against things. The next thing is you are light. Uh, You all are light of the world. There's a translation of the New Testament by David Bentley Hart. World is, is in Greek cosmos, and there are lots of places where it means the cosmos, and there are lots of places where it means our word world. But instead, because we lose that all the time, he translates every occurrence of it as cosmos. So what Jesus says to these people is, you are the light of the cosmos. You are the light of all things. This is maybe a bit too much for us, but that's what God and Jesus declares what we are. And in John's gospel, it takes on that we live in a world of darkness, that we are to be children of the light. You are light. You illuminate things. Now, in the ancient world, we talked about this with the Psalms too, is to proclaim something as a light is quite a big deal because you live at least half your day in darkness. Sure, you can have a fire and maybe bring a torch around, but there, are no, there is no electricity, which again, that's the obvious like thing. <laughs> um, but just to be reminded of that when something in the scriptures is called light, it means something a lot more than what we think. There are no street lights. Night was dangerous in most of the ancient world, um, or night was, darkness was, um, because that's when things, uh, we, you know, nothing good ha- happens after 8 o'clock is what my mom used to say. Um, but in the ancient world, I think that was more magnified because to leave the light, to leave being around a fire, to leave your house was more risky than it is today. There's still risk, but, but to be a light, to have be called a light, is to be called something essential, something safe, something that, that sort of brings um, out a goodness. The morning is a good time, because it means that the night has fallen and the new day has begun. You are the light of the world. You are the light of the cosmos. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. And, and this is one of those, in the first one we're told, don't lose our saltiness. In the second one, it's like, even if you try to hide it, you're not going to be that good at it. If God has declared that we are light in our, in our church and in our community, th- hiding it isn't going to work. Now, many of you have been bringing Kelly and I meals, and we are extremely grateful for that. But even something as benign as that, Kelly's mom, who... Um, has never really been a part of a church, was like, people just do this? They just bring by meals for you guys? Is, is this going on? And, and they, they took an offering to have her house cleaned, which happened. She said, this is the cleanest I've ever seen your house. And I was like, well, don't get used to it. Um, uh, but um, the, the idea is, is that you're, even in your smallness, the light sort of cracks through anyways. A city on a hill can't really hide itself that well. It's called to shine forth its light into the world. So even as we may try to lose our saltiness, it seems like 
is in this second one, it's like you, you can try to hide it, but it cannot be hidden. Neither, people, neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. The one who calls us light takes us out and puts us out to light up the whole house. In the ancient Near East, most of the households were one room. So one candle, one lamp put on a stand was indeed meant to light the whole house. And so it is with the church too, to be in this place, a light that enlightens the whole house, to be put on a stand. You don't try to hide it under a bushel, you don't try to push it away, but to, but to be a light in the world. We are not to flee into invisibility and to sort of hide this. And, and in the first one, the town where a commonwealth, in this place where the warmth that adds light to a house put on a sand. And it ends with, in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. This is a hard one, um, and I purposely chose good works instead of good deeds because I'm pretty sure we translate it good deeds so that we don't think that works is what we do to earn our salvation by Christians, which is true. But Matthew doesn't seem to have that concern. Matthew's concern is different. Matthew wants people to know that it is through their good works that they become, I think, transparent to see the light of their Father in heaven. It opens up to another reality beyond them. You're in some sense pointing to the thing that's bigger than you. You're pointing beyond yourself and your good deeds and your good works in a way to make a transparency and to make the kingdom manifest in the world. These good deeds, as we'll talk about, are these things in many ways that Jesus talks about in in the commands portion of the sermon, which is about the rest of it. Um, He commands these sort of ways of being in the world that are um, countercultural then and they're countercultural today. And he commands us to take this righteousness made possible only by him, to, to be an attractive, to sort of point to this reality that's beyond us. It's here in one of the first times that, that Jesus uses the praise, your Father in heaven, which becomes a major theme of the Sermon on the Mount. We pray to our Father in heaven. Your Father in heaven sees you in this. You're, and it brings out, at, the, at this time in the um, ancient Near East, the Jews would commonly call it would be appropriate for a Jew to call their God Father, so this is not a new thing. But what Jesus is sort of pointing out in his continued use of it is this heightened relationship we have through the Son to sort of move into knowing God in a more intimate way. That'll be a theme we pick up as we go through the sermon, is that he's displaying God in a, in a very personal way, in a way that sort of calls us out so that that can be known in the world. And so for today, we hear the call that we are to be salt. We are to be a contrast in a world. We're supposed to give it its flavor, individually and communally, and that we are to be light in this place too, that the church is promised and told by God that you are the light of the cosmos. And so it is for us to become what God has declared we are together. In his goodness, he blesses us and gives us these words. As we are attached to him, we become capable of the good needs in which he has promised for us. Let us pray. 
God, you have declared what we are. As we gather around you as disciples, as those who contain those who are poor in spirit, those who mourn, those persecuted, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness' sake, as we become those who come near to you, pure in heart, peacekeepers, you proclaim to us that we are salt. 